Alrighty then, let's take this opportunity to move away from Baudrillard, notably being the shouldn't just named it a Baudrillard channel, but now now we're gonna we're gonna branch out a little bit, but not all too far. We're gonna go to Foucault once again to the history of sexuality, and this might be an odd place to go because this you you know was not sh I could should run through them chronologically I guess supposedly, but. I have a very specific reason as to not do that. Notably, I, well, I really like this book or these books. And um, um, Foucault changes so much across time, it, it's almost okay to uh, look at his books in any any kind of order. So for anyone who hasn't read it yet, you know, you won't be totally lost if you, if you start reading some of his stuff that comes later as opposed to the earlier stuff, with some exceptions, however. Uh, Notably, it's probably best to read Madness and Civilization before reading The Birth of the Clinic. But, you know, those are two complicated texts. If you want to start there, more power to you. So this is a really fantastic book, the, the introduction here, the first volume. Uh, and it's nice and short, which is always good, uh, but, but it's, it is by no means easy. And to kind of preface it, to give a pretty general... Um, uh, look at what Foucault is doing here is he's trying to rethink the hypothesis that humankind or humans at least as we consider them in the West uh, have been historically repressed. For Foucault that's not the case or that certainly has not been the case. So before really be starting from the beginning uh, I'm going to jump a few pages in because he has a, a question that he frames in such a way as to give a very eloquent um, I guess, introductory statement as to what this book is going to do. He says, The question I would like to pose is not, why are we repressed, but rather, why do we say, with so much passion and so much resentment against our most recent past, against our present, and against ourselves, that we are repressed? So Foucault takes this book as an opportunity to think about the way in which sexuality did not suffer some kind of repressive, uh, or did not get repressed under some the ages of some kind of um, homogenizing political or societal force, but rather how there was actually an explosion of sexuality at the time that we located a certain degree of repression in it. So in many ways, this, not in many ways, this is a direct response to Freud. However, Critiques against Freud are difficult to mount because he has he does change, and really all of his books are kind of reimaginings of his previous books, and he does speak to himself, so it's difficult to really say that this is just a, a critique mounted against Freud because then we, you know, if we're going to be properly analytic about it, who is Freud? What what book? Uh, what Freudian book are we speaking about there? So you know, sorry for making it more perhaps com complicated than it needs to be, but I think it's important to say. So right at the beginning, Foucault tells us that at the beginning of the 17th century, a certain frankness was still common, it would seem. Sexual practices had little need of secrecy, words were not said without undue reticence, and things were done without too much concealment. One had a tolerant familiarity with the illicit. So to kind of contextualize this within... Uh, 
Foucault's broader broader works or uh, across his entire projects, project, his work, um, we can think of the, this in the same terms as some of his rhetoric or some of his uh, theses in Discipline and Punish, where he says that sovereign power gave way to disciplinary power, and we'll talk about that more toward the end of this book. Um, but what we saw was rather uh, an attempt to reform people. So it wasn't about sending them out of the village in the case of like the Great Confinement or, you know, making it so that the people were simply put to death. Rather, things like mental illness were given a name or given a face that people could essentially, or that, you know, medical practitioners could diagnose and correct. So there was, uh, it's almost as though people were not ashamed or society was not ashamed of its ill, but saw an opportunity to reform them, to fix them, to keep them in the same sphere. And I think the same can be said of sexuality and how Foucault is writing about it here, because it wasn't simply something that was cast out, right? Something that was, you know, hated, but rather it was something that if people did hate it, if people were really afraid of it, it that simply marks for Foucault that it had a very strong effect and signal that it was not repressed, but that it was there almost to a hyper-real extent, essentially scaring people. But then, as the story goes, Foucault says that twilight soon fell upon this bright day, followed by the monotonous nights the Victorian bourgeoisie where sexuality was carefully confined, moved into the home. But this narrative around sexuality as uh, something that was repressed in the Victorian era served no, another function than simply um, homogenizing people or controlling people. Rather, it spurred on a kind of um, insurgent attitude where Foucault writes that if sex is repressed, that is, condemned prohibition, non-existence, and silence, then the mere fact that one is speaking about it has the appearance of a deliberate transgression. So, he continues a little later on, what sustains our eagerness to uh, speak of sex in terms of repression is doubtless this opportunity to speak out against the powers that be, to utter truths and promise bliss, to link together enlightenment, liberation, and manifold pleasures, to pronounce a discourse that combines the fervor of knowledge, the determination to change the laws, and the longing for the garden of earthly delights. Now this is surely indicative of some of the uh, rhetoric that was floating around in the uh, mid 20th century. And first person to come to my head would be um, Herbert Marcuse and many of his um, theories linking, you know, psychoanalysis with Marxism in an effort to kind of point to the liberatory potential of those repressed desires. So those kind of repressed um, biological drives. Whereas for Foucault is really, I think, more responding to that than Freud himself, because he, he speaks kind of affirmatively of Freud um, in, in quite a few of his different books, actually, where he says that Freud, you know, despite the faults Foucault would take from him in, like, uh, Madness and Civilization, I believe it's that one, and I, I believe it's not The Birth of the Clinic, but in Madness and Civilization, he says, you know, at least Freud let those people condemned or um, considered mentally ill speak. They weren't just silenced. So, and he applauds Freud for that. However, I digress. So this whole concern with liberation, that thing that is kind of dialectically put um, in contrast to 
repression was almost a strategic impulse employed by people, but it's difficult to say as to whether or not the whole narrative around repression works in tandem with that discourse around liberation, which can then be seen as a transgressive force to that constructive narrative of repression. So it's like, um, it's, uh, I wonder what a good analogy would be. Well, a good present day analogy would take, for instance, the contemporary rhetoric, at least in the United States, about this advent of fake news. Advent, not because it necessarily exists, but at least it's being spoken about. Now, fake news as is framed as a repressive phenomenon, right? As something that conceals the truth. But it is only by constructing it as such that certain narratives can be given the space of truth, that can be given or attached significance of speaking the truth. So certain conservative voices then are capable of giving themselves a degree of legitimacy. You know, and I want to, I don't want to be so dismissive, even though in my heart of hearts, I absolutely think this way. But those people that align themselves on the, you know, extremely conservative side with the current president um, push this narrative of repression and they do it as a means to avoid actually engaging in, at least this is what I think in relation to Foucault here, perhaps they refuse to engage in meaningful dialogue because, you know, they're rhetorical masters um, or they're just, they stonewall you. And instead of actually engaging in meaningful dialogue, they just construct the narrative that everyone else is telling lies, therefore we are telling the truth type thing. I believe sexuality is doing the same thing here, but as Foucault will come to say, at least with his closing remarks, and I, you know, I will read them out here, the final words that he leaves us with with this book is, is that the irony of this deployment is in having us believe that our liberation is in the balance, our de the deployment being that of sexuality or associating it with liberation for some reason. So it's for that reason that sexuality was actually gaining something kind of traction and it was um, able to develop itself to the extent that we could attach to it various kinds of significatory liberatory practices or ideas that gave it even more authority than it ever had. So all this culminates into Foucault giving us essentially three theses or three concerns. The first is, goes as follows. Is sexual repression truly an established historical fact? Okay. Number two, do the workings of power, and in particular those mechanisms that are brought into play in societies such as ours, really belong primarily to the category of repression? And then number three, did the critical discourse that addresses itself to repression come to act as a roadblock to a power mechanism that had operated unchallenged up to that point? Or is it not in fact part of the same historical network as the thing it denounces and doubtless misrepresents by calling it repression? So Foucault has a problem with each of these kind of three hypotheses that, um, you know, repression is something mobilized by power. Whereas Foucault wants to think instead how power um, multiplies things actually. Power explodes things, explodes discourse, brings things out into the open. Because otherwise, if we are caught in a, a conundrum where we believe power to be something that represses, represses, or power to be something that conceals, 
I believe Foucault would say we are missing our mark. We are failing to recognize that no such thing would exist. Rather, we are operating at the level of the capillary, right? So the capillary, thinking of maybe arteries, uh, is almost like a web of power relations, right? And they're so infinitesimal that they can't be seen in the way that sovereign power once was, where there was a very clear locus of power. Now we have a network of power relations, or as he says it, the polymorphous techniques of power. So moving into the first chapter, um, the incitement of discourse. Oh, did I just lie? No. Yeah. The incitement to discourse. Sorry. Um, Foucault tells us that in contrast to the repressive hypothesis or the idea that sexuality was repressed or is repressed, he says that there was a steady proliferation of discourses concerned with sex, specific discourses different from one another both by their form and by their object, a discursive ferment that gathered momentum from the 18th century onwards, or onward. Now I must say that as I'm as I'll move through the other um, uh, volumes of this, uh, the history of sexuality, volume one, uh, two, and three, and I'm waiting for the fourth one. Uh, it hasn't been translated, so I don't know. Maybe I'll I'll try to tr- slap together a shitty translation, like find it, put it somewhere. Um, but he does question himself to some extent in the second and third volumes. So he speaks here about how there was kind of an explosion of sexuality. But then he traces it back to the Greeks in the second and third um, volumes and, and kind of rethinks his thesis. It doesn't change too, too much. Well, it depends. depends who you're asking. But uh, there are some differences there. So that's just kind of a to prepare you for what may come with the following discussions, one-way discussions. So sex or the act of sex is a thing that, it, that exists, I will say, as like a natural phenomenon, something that humans do, uh, you know, whoever they do it with is, you know, that's when you get into the realm of ideology, but the act of coitus occurs, and but of course not for everyone, you know, I don't want to normalize sexuality like that, but Foucault is interested in the way that it kind of entered the realm of discourse, so what, what occurred? For it, to not, for it to enter discourse, and then for that discourse to be exploded. So what he says is that discourse, therefore, had to trace the meeting line of the body and the soul, following all its meanderings. Beneath the surface of the sins, it would lay bare the unbroken nerver of the flesh, under the authority of a language that had been carefully expurgated so that it was no longer directly named, sex was taken charge of, tracked down as it were, by a discourse that aimed to allow it no obscurity, no respite. So sex as a natural thing was transformed into discourse. So we could, you know, problematize this a little bit and ask like, okay, well, to what extent does sex actually exist outside of discourse? Can we say quite quite easily that there is a transition from sex as, and I don't believe he uses the term natural, but he's just kind of saying that it's a thing, uh, from whatever it is to discourse, where for my own for my own academic training, I'd be a little bit reticent to assume that anything can necessarily exist outside of discourse. But maybe we'll unravel that, or I'll think of a way to solve that here. 
But however way you might look at it, uh, Foucault makes clear that this rendering sex into a discourse made it so that it, it, it developed a kind of malleability. So he says, not only will you confess to acts contravening the law, but you will seek to transform your desire, your every desire into discourse. And this all came down to, as he says, as he says, the nearly infinite task of telling, telling oneself and another as often as possible, everything that might concern the interplay of innumerable pleasures, sensations, and thoughts, which through the body and the soul had some affinity with sex. So I want to jump ahead here a little bit to try and clarify what he means. So it seems as though, and this is the um, illustration that he gives us a little later on, uh, or sooner than later, really. Uh, he makes the distinction between sex and sexuality. So keeping in mind what I just read or what I just discussed pertaining to Foucault's thoughts about sex as entering discourse to some extent or entering the place of sexuality, he says much later on in the book, in my version, page 157, and the reason that I'm bringing this up is because, you know, I'm trying to construct a, a clear linear narrative here to kind of make it less confusing, but I'll probably make it more confusing. But he says much later on that we must not place sex on the side of reality and sexuality on that of confused ideas and illusions. Sexuality is a very real historical formation. It is what gave rise to the notion of sex as a speculative element necessary to its operation. Okay, this is, in my mind, exceptionally difficult to grasp. But keeping in mind what I had said earlier, pertaining to the way that there was the, a notion of repression constructed almost to give sex a superior position in its liberatory potential, it seems as though we construct a narrative around sexuality in order to suggest that there is a kind of originary point, notably sex itself. So it's as though we can dig through all the uh, stuff pertaining to sexuality in the form of discourse or whatever form it takes to get at some kind of real sexual function or some kind of real biological imperative. But for, for Foucault, that's, that's not what's going on here. And he certainly doesn't want it to seem as though sex is some kind of real thing that exists in nature, and it's simply a matter of us trying to get back to that. Rather, he's interested in the way that the two, both sex and sexuality, in many ways constitute one another, where even the notion of sex as a thing that exists naturally can only exist if we've developed various axioms pertaining to the notions of sex, uh, naturality, um, you know, biology, liberation, anything like that, that can only actually be arrived at through the act of discourse or reason or anything like that. So I, I thought it, would, it was important to bring that up, uh, but now I'll jump, I'll jump back. So all this proliferation around sex did usher in something of a kind of mechanism of control. But we would be wrong to think that it it was a um, uh, there there were techniques of control employed by a single locus of power. Rather, Foucault makes clear that sex was not something one simply judged. It was it was a thing one administered. It was in the nature of a political potential. It called for management procedures. It had to be taken charge of by analytical discourses. So we can think of this transition from a kind of sovereign exertion of power over sex to this administered 
life form, you know, administered life. I think of a Dorno here, but um, a kind of control at the capillary level. And I think of an image that might make it clearer. If we think of a sandbox, for instance, where someone is playing in a sandbox, let's assume a child, uh, they are defined by the parameters set forth within that sandbox. Now, if someone would come to the child and say, I'm going to make your sandbox a thousand times bigger. And I might throw some things in there, you know, to make it more fun. Uh, and you, you will be given essentially free reign. You might not even have the time in your life to explore every part of the sandbox. It would seem as though from the perspective of, perspective of the child, because the parameters of the sandbox suddenly go out of view, or the borders of it suddenly go out of view, that the sandbox is um, the world itself, and it is a liberatory space for that very reason. It no longer has those boundaries. Yet only from looking from the outside to some extent, and I don't want to necessarily say that there's you know, a very clear distinction in the case of sexuality between an inside and an outside, or rather just humor my um, analogy or my metaphor here, from the outside, we certainly know that there are still these parameters in place. However, they take pernicious form to the person inside of them. They can no longer see those borders. They are essentially invisible. So sex then for Foucault became a police matter in the 18th century. So this act of policing, as Foucault makes clear, was a policing of sex. That is, not the rigor of a taboo but the necessity of regulating sex through useful and public discourses. And then in this entire explosion of sexuality, and this is a thing he really develops in his last chapter, um, we see the emergence to some extent of this thing called a subject, because the subject is it was able to take control of their discourse and through that determine themselves as such, notably as a subject that could navigate the world freely as long as they remained within the parameters of the discourses set. So the question then became around the topic of populations, and populations are essentially masses comprised of individuals. Then you see the emergence of statistics and all these types of things, or as Foucault says, um, at the heart of this economic and political problem of population was sex. It was necessary to analyze the birth rate, the age of marriage, the legitimate and illegitimate births, the precocity and frequency of sexual relations, the ways of making them fertile or sterile, the effects of unmarried life or of the prohibitions, the impact of contraceptive practices or these notorious deadly secrets, which demographers on the eve of the revolution knew, they, knew were already familiar to the inhabitants of the countryside. So to think about this in a, in a kind of pragmatic way, uh, Foucault turns to um, secondary schools of the 18th century. So he says that there, many people believe that secondary schools, notably probably uh, you know only filled with young boys at the time, uh, were places that fostered the repression of sexuality, where people were not allowed to talk about it, people were not allowed to certainly engage in it, and they, they weren't allowed to you know express themselves in any any kind of sexual way, verbal or, or otherwise. But of this, Foucault says that one only has to glance over the architectural layout, the rules of discipline, and their whole internal organization. The question of sex was actually a constant preoccupation, not something that people were repress, repressing 
or that they were repressed and this was an institution indicative of that repression. So for example, the space for classes, the distribution of the dormitories, with or without partitions, with or without curtains, the rules for monitoring bedtime and sleep periods, all this referred in the most prolix manner to the sexuality of children. So all of these institutional practices, how they partitioned off rooms in certain ways, uh, you know, they can all, this can also be seen in the home where children are essentially partitioned off from the, the sexually active parents. Now, for Foucault, that would mean that do they not want the children to be engaging sexually, or was there the fear that <coughs> they'll, they'll recognize something in the act of sex itself? So there, there was a societal fear that people would realize that sex is something that, that is actually fostered, harnessed, even in its negation by these institutions. And, that, and to close off this chapter, Foucault brings up the, a possible rebuttal that someone might have. Someone may say to him, and he he entertains this this possibility that doesn't do don't all these mechanisms point to the fact that there was repression that the, that repression was something that people essentially engaged in through, as it was administered by some kind of authoritative um, personas persona and Foucault responds to the question with a series of questions and they go as follows. Does it not partake of the injunction by which discourse is provoked? Is it not with the aim of inciting people to speak of sex that it is made to mirror at the, at the outer, outer limit of every actual discourse something akin to a secret whose discovery is imperative, a thing abusively reduced to silence, and at the same time difficult and necessary, dangerous and precious to divulge, we must not forget that by making sex into that which above all else has to be confessed, the Christian pastoral always presented it as the disquieting enigma, not a thing which stubbornly shows itself, but one which always hides the insidious presence that speaks in a voice so muted and often disguised that one risks remaining deaf to it. Doubtless, the secret does not reside in that basic reality in relation to which all the incitements to speak of sex are situated. Whether they try to force the secret, or whether in some obscure way they reinforce it by the manner in which they speak of it. So what all this comes down to in his concluding remark to this chapter is that what is peculiar about modern societies, in fact, is not that they consign sex to a shadow existence, because that would mark a kind of repressive hypothesis and, and affirm that repressive hypothesis, but rather that they dedicated themselves to speaking of it ad infinitum while exploiting it as the secret, giving it even more kind of explosive potential. So here we move into chapter two, and he begins with a possible objection that goes as follows. It would be a mistake to see in this proliferation of discourse as merely a quantitative phenomenon, something like a pure increase, as if what was said in them were immaterial, as if the fact of speaking about sex were of itself more important than the forms of imperatives that were imposed on it by speaking about it. Now, jump a little bit here. Uh, our epoch has initiated sexual heterogeneities, which doesn't mean that there aren't still barriers, right? In the case of like the sandbox, they still exist and you can only go so far. However, and he, you know, he makes clear that it's not simply um, a quantitative phenomenon. There is to some extent uh, in the act of extending the discourse almost quantitatively, it does give it something of um, 
it can then be regarded as a benevolent act or being a benevolent um, kind of democratization or coming out of of the very discourse itself. Whereas Foucault wants to think that, you know, maybe these discourses aren't exactly a great thing. So some of the mechanisms kind of previously, previously employed, notably what we've often construed with repressive mechanisms indicative, let's say, of the church uh, that did you know, place limits on on what people could do, obviously. Um, but we, we remember, we're, all, we're thinking about even these limits differently now. It's not a point of repression, but rather as um, a making sex into something of the secret and giving it its authority through that, essentially. So what Foucault comes to, comes to say in response to that, or what developed, was that the discursive explosion of the 18th and 19th centuries caused this system centered on legitimate alliance to undergo two modifications. First, a centrifugal movement with respect to heterosexual monogamy. Of course, the array of practices and pleasures continued to be referred to it as their internal standard, but it was spoken of less and less, or in any case with a growing moderation. Efforts to find out its secrets were abandoned. Nothing further was demanded of it than to define itself from day to day. The legitimate couple with its regular sexuality had a right to more discretion. It tended to function as a norm, one that was stricter, perhaps, but quieter. On the other hand, what came under scrutiny was the sexuality of children, madmen and women, and criminals, the sensuality of those who did not like the opposite sex, reveries, obsessions, petty manias, or great transports of rage. It was time for all these figures, scarcely noticed in the past, to step forward and speak, to make the difficult confession of what they were. No doubt they were condemned all the same, but they were listened to, and if regular sexuality happened to be questioned once again, it was through a reflux movement originating in these peripheral sexualities. So of this kind of opening up of various counter-discourses to that monogamous um, kind of Christian institution of uh, the heterosexual coupling, Foucault has some uh, various questions. He asks, what does the appearance of all these peripheral sexualities signify? Is the fact that they could appear in broad daylight a sign that the code has become more lax? Or does the fact that they were given so much attention testify to a stricter regime and to its concern to bring them under close supervision? So it gives us a kind of transitory transit story. He illustrates a moment of transition between two forms of kind of governance over the over bodies over over people. So there were um, there were prohibitions of consanguine marriages, as numerous and, and complex as they were, uh, which also came out in the condemnation of adultery. Um, or on the other hand, the recent controls through which since the 19th century the sexuality of children has been subordinated and their solitary habits. So between these two different forms, the one kind of outlined just prior to this, uh, through like the church or through through anything like that, over what constituted a heterosexual coupling in the form of like monogamy or whatever other institutions um, were necessary for the realization of that, inst- that the institution of the marriage, um, we had that and the disciplinary control that sprouted above that. And then he gives us the case of the sexuality of children. So what he says very clearly 
is that it is clear that we are not dealing with one and the same power mechanism between these between these two phenomenon phenomena jesus but what appears in both however foucault states that there was an effort to eliminate that was already that was always destined to fail and always constrained to begin with but the prohibition of incests attempted to reach its objective through an asymptotic decrease in the thing it condemned whereas the control the control of infantile sexuality hoped to reach it through a simultaneous propagation of its own power and of the object on which it was brought to bear so this was twofold or there was a kind of double bind because at one moment um uh here i lost it um doctors or, or whoever or sorry educators and doctors were using the tenuous pleasures as a prop notably the acts that would be conducted by children in the form of sexuality or whatever they were used as a prop constituting them as secrets that is forcing them into hiding so as to make possible their discovery tracing them back to their source tracking them from their origins to their effects searching out everything that might cause them or simply enable them to exist so this was a very clever strategy on the part of educators and doctors here because by constructing it in such a way as to suggest that that uh, underneath the reprehensible act of childhood sexuality uh, was this thing called sex and by challenging that the sexuality of, of children they were by extension extension challenging the thing called sex itself but at the same time they were constituting it as such but relegating it to the margins saying like okay what we have to deal with here is this thing called childhood sexuality which scares the shit out of us and in doing so by them saying that they effectively generate a narrative around sex affirming it a thing that for for, for Foucault is not quite as clearly laid out but in doing so, it opened up a new space of discipline or control. So as he says, wherever there was a, the chance they might appear, that is these um, reprehensible acts, I'm using that term kind of ironically, how they might have thought of it. So wherever there was the chance they might appear, devices of surveillance were installed. Traps were laid for compelling admissions inexhaustible and corrective discourses were imposed parents and teachers were alerted and left with the suspicion that all children were guilty and with the fear of being themselves at fault if their suspicions were not sufficiently strong they were kept in readiness in the face of this recurrent danger their conduct conduct was prescribed and their pedagogy recodified an entire medico-sexual regime took hold of the family milieu so like the proliferation of discourse around sexuality that allowed people to, to exist in an ever-growing sandbox, disciplinary powers also multiplied. So what, um, always relying on this support, Foucault tells us, power advanced, multiplied its relays and its effects, while its target expanded, subdivided, and branched out as well. Because it had to meet, meet the demands of that very discourse around sexuality that exploded right so the uh, the way that discipline worked out was as i think i've already made pretty clear it went from the single point of power to a more bureaucratic administrative type form of authority or power so now we'll move into the second 
um, kind of strategy employed. So he begins this one by saying, this new persecution of the peripheral sexualities entailed an incorporation of perversions and a new specification of individuals. So to think about this today, we can think about the DSM, right, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual that um, codifies, recognizes, and then mandates and controls all kinds of what I think would fall under the umbrella of Foucault's term here, perversion, uh, of being those things that were recognized and in their recognition, that is the expanding of the sandbox, but then only recognized so that, you know, satellites can be put above the sandbox so that it can be controlled and watched and mandated. So then Foucault thinks about this in terms of homosexuality. And this was, I, I assume, you know, hit pretty close to home for him because he was, he was a gay man uh, in a time where the DSM recognized homosexuality as being uh, a mental disorder. So Foucault went the majority of his life, and I think it was, you know, up until his death almost, or just around that time, that he was recognized by the state, by the um, medical institutions, as having a mental illness by being gay. So, you know, there, there's something to be said about him writing. Not to say that he could only write about that because he was gay, or, or that he only found it important because of that. But he was really speaking to something truth to power here, I think. So for a very long time, those people that engaged in homosexual acts before it was given that name were, were simply sodomizers, right? They were just simply people that were, you know, sub almost subhuman to some extent. So as Foucault says, the 19th century homosexual became a personage a past, a case history, and a childhood, in addition to being a type of life, a life form, and a morphology, with an indiscreet anatomy and possibly a mysterious physiology. This was because absolutely nothing in his life, or, or their, in, nothing in their life, could be affected, uh, or nothing in their life was separate from their sexuality. So no matter how someone acted, because they've been given that title, and, you know, we, we can... Uh, apply any title to this certainly today with um the way that um with with the oh my god the advent of trans rights how people believe it to be a political move where people suggest that the only reason that you know trans people are like that is because of their being trans of their fighting for their rights is because they're trans and then fit some kind of left-wing uh george soros agenda or some something like that and foucault is really speaking to that here because Anything that is derivative to or viewed as such from the norm, and perhaps in this case, you know, we think of the cisgender um, heterosexual subject, happens to also be white. Uh, anything that deviates from that will is, is then existing in a world or then conducts their life based solely on what was regarded as that, that perversion or that distinct characteristic of themselves. So what we have then, as Foucault tells us, was that homosexuality appeared as one of the forms of sexuality when it was transposed from the practice of sodomy onto a kind of interior androgyny, a hermaphrodism of the soul. The sodomite had been a temporary aberration. The homosexual, the ho homosexual, the homosexual was now a species, or the way that you know we could think about this in terms of uh, one of Sarah Ahmed's really nice dictums in queer phenomenology were those people that don't fit 
or don't subscribe to the general narrative because of their their body or because of their any reason are viewed as oblique and for that reason have to navigate the world in such a way as you know it makes it rather difficult for themselves and from the outside i think you know locating that in relation to foucault uh, there is an attempt to regard those people as only acting as such because of the way that they are, or or them being that category, as opposed to, of course, you know, the disciplinary uh, effects or or the the yeah the disciplinary sanctions imposed on such bodies by a, a repressive mechanism. So then we can enter here into the third uh, point where he starts out by saying that more than the old taboos, this form of power demanded constant, attentive, and curious presences for its exercise. It presupposed proximities. It proceeded through examination and insistent observation. It required an exchange of discourses through questions that extorted admissions and confidences that went beyond the questions that were asked. So this, um, uh, let me see... Right, and conversely, since sexuality was a medical and medicalizable object, one had to try and detect it as a lesion, a dysfunction or a symptom, in the depths of the organism or on the surface of the skin or among all the signs of behavior. Now this is um, indicative of the general logic that Foucault is kind of um, trying to rally against throughout all of his books to some extent, kind of, kind of the project of the Enlightenment. Because there's a moment in Birth of the Clinic when he's, um, there's one chapter titled Open Up a Few Corpses, where there was suddenly this kind of odd desire to get into the secret recesses of the human body in order to apply various, you know, direct meanings, supposedly, to various ailments, right? Not to say that, you know, the development in medical technology is a bad thing, but it did usher in a new form of uh, kind of a disciplinary panoptic gaze. Or it put bodies under a kind of spectral gaze, caressing them with its eyes, as he writes here. So this form of gaze works or has a double impetus, as Foucault says, that of pleasure and power, where he says that the pleasure that comes of exercising a power that questions, monitors, watches, spies, searches out, palpates, brings to light, and on the other hand, the pleasure that kindles at having to evade this power, flee from it, fool it, or travesty it, the power that lets itself be invaded by the pleasure it is pursuing, and opposite it, power asserting itself in the pleasure of showing off, scandalizing, or resisting. So, you know, it's, it's tricky at times, I, even for my own part, to grasp how the act of observing is a kind of repressive phenomenon in this in this new framework sorry about the chair and i think of i think of surveillance cameras as one such example where people or one way to think about this where there is a tendency especially if we take this in in um, tandem with police violence and some of the students i've worked with have um, made this this point when we introduced uh, surveillance technology in our daily lives, the, the general idea was that it would solve it would solve problems because suddenly we'd be given the objective world, where the act of testimony or testifying, which can often be um, 
misguided or it can be uh, ill-remembered ill because the human memory is fragile. Uh, there was the idea that if we could capture the objective world as things happened, then, you know, we'd be one step closer to that thing called truth. So, we, you know, it'd be a wonder for this thing called justice. It'd be a wonder for the courts or anything like that. But we could take a rather, uh, a pretty good example, notably the case of police violence, where, you know, in the United States, there's a great deal of police violence, especially against racialized mi minorities, people of color. And there was very much rhetoric whenever this, these things occurred that, you know, it's just their word against whoever else's word, quite simply. And then suddenly cameras were introduced. Police officers had to wear these cameras. Or there was the case of Rodney King. Yet still, these narratives persisted. Well, when was the camera turned on? Um, how come we don't see the full context? It doesn't look to me like that is what is actually happening. When in, you know, real fact, you can see exactly the kind of repression occurring. So it's not quite so clear as to whether or not uh, the objective capturing of the world is not in and of it in and of itself a kind of subjective, a kind of culturally contingent act where I wonder if anything that can be captured can truly speak to a, a kind of truth formula or if it will always already be given up to the jackals of the, those um, holders of power to some extent, where it doesn't matter what is seen because the narrative can be spun in almost any way, or there's no way outside of the text or inputting the notion of the text onto that. So that's how I think about this in this way, why, why Foucault is so reticent to think about the act of gazing or seeing as being something that, that, that is good or that opens up a kind of emancipatory space. So on that, now we'll move into the fourth kind of form the power assumes. So he says that people often assume that sexuality was relegated to the heterosexual uh, couple, where he says actually there are equal grounds for saying that it has, if not created, at least outfitted and made to proliferate groups with multiple elements and a circulating sexuality, a distribution of points of power hierarchized and placed opposite to one another, pursued um, pleasures, that is, both sought after and searched out, compartmental sexualities that are tolerated or encouraged, proximities that serve as surveillance procedures and function as mechanisms of intensification, contacts that operate as inductors. So keeping him, you know, trying to remain consistent here with Foucault's line of thought, it's not as though sexuality disappeared, but that it was relegated to various zones where it could be controlled and mandated, where thinking about how children have to sleep in different bedrooms um, so that, you know, almost the extent of their possible sexuality could be in the form of masturbation, not with children touching one another or learning about uh, their sexuality in that way as a means of curbing the possibility of the, the really reprehensible acts that, that children can, can take on. Not to say I espouse anything in, the, in saying this, but I believe that's what he's saying here. So what we see, and this is only emphasized in the illustration I just gave with partitioning off in the various rooms, what we saw was the development of singular sexualities, where each to their own could exist as they want. Again, like in, a, like in the sandbox, it is ultimately refined and mandated. 
But, you know, my sandbox analogy, like it kind of falls short because that would imply that there are still boundaries, whereas Foucault's suggesting that these boundaries have disappeared. So imagine a sandbox without boundaries, yet it's still a box. I don't know. I thought it was a good analogy to leave me alone. So again, Foucault cautions that we don't regard this explosion of singular sexualities as being something to celebrate. As he says, the implantation of perversions is an instrument effect. It is through the isolation, intensification, and consolidation of peripheral sexualities that the relations of power to sex and pleasure branched out and multiplied, measured the body, and penetrated modes of conduct. So it's on that note. Now we'll move into the next section, section three, I guess. Scientia sexualis, which, you know, he's going to be speaking about the attachment of science and, and sexuality. What does that mean? So in the case of science, Foucault is not convinced that it ever took up uh, sexuality in a direct way. So this is kind of the undercurrent of all the other methods by which um, our society has proliferated sexuality, is it doesn't go after it directly, but it finds um, kind of hidden ways to to bring it up or to um, allow it to proliferate. So what he says of science is that this was in fact a science made up of evasions, evasions, since given its inability or refusal to speak of sex itself, it concerned itself primarily with aberrations, perversions, exceptional oddities, pathological abatements, and morbid aggravations. So then because of the attachment of science with truth, and you know, Foucault could have had a whole book on that, why, why do we associate science with truth? Or I guess that's kind of what the birth of the clinic is. Um, he says of this, it, because of that attachment, it stirred up people's fears to the least oscillations of sexuality. It ascribed an imaginary dynasty of evils destined to be passed on for generations. It declared the furtive customs of, customs of the timid and the most solitary of petty manias that were dangerous for the whole of society. Strange pleasures, it warned, would eventually result in nothing short of death, that of individuals, generations, the species itself. So then sex become, <coughs> became attached to biology, to the body. So in the name of a biological and, and historical urgency, it justified the racisms of the state, which he has a whole other kind of conversation about, uh, which at the time were on the horizon. It grounded them in truth. So this whole discourse around sexuality through science was an effort to um, constitute sex as a problem of truth, to make it a matter of truth or falsity. So the important thing, as Foucault tells us, in this affair is not that these men, the doctors or, or what have you, shut their eyes or stop their ears or that they were mistaken. It is rather that they constructed around and apropos of sex an immense apparatus for producing truth, even, in it, even if this truth was to be masked at the last moment or relegated to the, um, to the recesses of secrecy, as we were speaking about it earlier. So there have been, for Foucault, too great, too great, procedures for producing the truth of sex. So the first one, indicative of China, Japan, India, Rome, and Arab Muslim societies, which endowed themselves with an ars erotica. So in the erotic art, truth is drawn from pleasure itself, understood as a practice and accumulated as experience. Pleasure is not considered in relation to an absolute law of the permitted and the forbidden, nor by reference to a criterion of utility, but first and foremost in relation to itself. It is experienced as, it is experienced as pleasure, 
evaluated in terms of its intensity, its specific quality, its duration, its reverberations in the body and the soul. So this is a really important point, and let's put a pin in that for a moment and move on a little bit, but I'll come back to that. So then in opposition to this in, in the West, uh, we don't have this kind of arserotica. In, in return, it's, it is undoubtedly the only civilization to practice a scientia sexualis, or rather, the only civilization to have developed over the centuries procedures for telling the truth of sex, which are geared to a form of knowledge power strictly opposed to the art of initiations and the masterful secret, I have in mind the confession. So, to go back to that first point, uh, I want to present a dichotomy that he establishes later on. And it could be a little earlier as well, but there's a really crucial point at the, in the last chapter. So, keeping in mind the way that he framed but the I guess the Occident or the Orient, sorry, uh, which is a romantic view, and I would problematize that. But for now, if we just accept it, um, he says later on on page one fifty seven in my edition, so really toward the end, the rallying point for the counterattack against the deployment of sexuality ought not to be sex desire, but bodies and pleasures. So I believe that the second formulation, that is bodies and pleasures, resonates well with how he constructs those, or how he conceives of those cultures that engage in what he calls an arserotica, or that um, uh, attachment of truth to pleasure itself. So bodies and pleasure are really what interests him, kind of the thing that makes the world go round, not the mandated, controlled form of sex desire, which will always only speak to power will only belong within the paradigm of a system of power to some extent. So I brought that that up to ho in hopes of making it a little clearer, but you know I may have uh, made it worse. But anyway, that's what we have here. So he says that in the second formulation, that is the one govern that governs the West, we have a system of confession. We live in a society of confession. So this is really just Nietzsche. Uh, uh, especially the genealogy of morality, where Nietzsche says this kind of slave morality is seeped in to some extent and has made, you know, man, uh, uh, made man forget how to love himself or made the human forget how to love themselves. And instead, people always feel guilty. People always feel like they, they aren't good enough, whether it's to God or the state in the Hobbesian sense or like Leviathan. Um, what we have is a society where people are, can't be great because they feel constantly indebted to something else. So that is what we have here in this in this confession situation. So for Foucault, the confession became one of the West's most highly valued techniques for producing truth. We have since become a singularly confessing society. The confession has spread its effects far and wide. It plays a part in justice, medicine, education, family relationships, and love relations, in the most ordinary affairs of everyday life, and in the most solemn rites. One confesses one's crimes, one's sins, one's thoughts and desires, one's illnesses and troubles. One goes about telling with the greatest precision whatever is most difficult to tell. So that he says, you know, speaking to Aristotle, Western man has become a confessing animal, no longer a political or social one, but a confessing one. So we have this need to confess because we've established through this explosion of sexuality, we've been able to relegate various sexual, uh, singular sexualities to the positions of falsity, to the positions of deviance, to anything like that, so that in order to not to emancipate people or to 
show like give options but to hone in and construct a narrative around what is proper by saying what is improper but how does it actually have this affinity with truth how does the confession speak to truth well Foucault tells us the confession frees but power reduces so here already we can hear echoed um his old, what he was saying at the beginning of the book about this explosion of sexuality, how it was part and parcel of this kind of scientific apparatus. So confession frees, but power reduces one to silence. Truth does not belong to the order of power, but shares an original affinity with freedom. Traditional themes and philosophy, which a political history of truth would have to overturn by showing that truth is not by nature free, nor error servile. Servile but that its production is thoroughly imbued with relations of power. The confession is an example of this. So he continues a little later on, the confession is a ritual of discourse in which the speaking subject is also the subject of the statement. It is also a ritual that unfolds within a power relationship. And because truth, knowledge, you know, that truth-knowledge paradigm only works within power to some extent, some kind of formulation of it, then we are seeing the formation of it of a truth claim of kind of truth phenomenon here. So then what interests Foucault is the transition from the confession as a religious <clears throat> as a religious phenomenon, something that, you know, in, in the Christian Christian way, um, the Catholic way, went from that to, uh, to 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 science. How did science take up the confession in in this way? Because as we've established, at least if we accept what Foucault is saying, confession spoke to truth. So how did science capitalize on that? And there are a few reasons for this. Number one, through a clinical codification of the inducement to speak, combining confession with examination, the personal history with the deployment of a set of decipherable signs and symptoms, the interrogation, the exacting questionnaire and hypnosis, with the recollection of memories and free association, all were ways of reinscribing the procedure of confession in a field of scientifically acceptable observations. That's all he says about that. I mean, that's pretty clear. I couldn't make it any clearer. Uh, number two, through the postulate of a general and diffuse, diffuse causality. Sorry. So this explosion of sexuality, especially through the singular sexualities that would come to confess and speak, um, what we saw then uh, was um, the development of an inexhaustible and polymorphous casual power. So the most discrete event in one's sexual behavior, whether an accident or a deviation, a deficit or a success, was deemed capable of entailing the most varied consequences throughout one's existence. There was scarcely a malady or physical disturbance to which the 19th century did not impute at least some degree of sexual etiology. Etiology being a kind of explanation for what uh, the ailment is or what, why it was caused. So sex then, through this confessionary model, uh, was then viewed as the cause of any and everything, and was the historical underside of confession that had to be thorough, meticulous, and constant. Bend in the page. Constant, and at the same time, operate within a scientific type of practice. Okay, then here, for the sake of time, move on to the third one, because I thought that was pretty clear. So through the principle of a latency intrinsic of sexuality, if it was necessary to exa extract the truth of sex through the techniques of confession, this was not simply because it was difficult to tell or stricken by the taboos of decency, but because the ways of sex were obscure, it was elusive by nature, its energy and its mechanisms escaped observation, and its casual power 
causal power was partly clandestine. So whereas the confession, especially in the religious sense, was a thing that was done so that a person could essentially forget about the bad things that they did because they knew they were going to be forgiven by this higher power God, uh, in the scientific moment, the confession is actually something to bring something up, to make it more real than real, to make it something that the subject can come to terms with, to make it truthful. So now number four, through the method of interpretation. So if one had to confess, this was not merely because the person to whom one confessed had the power to forgive, console, and direct, but because the work of producing the truth was obliged to pass through this relationship if it was to be scientifically validated. Now this comes through a history, right, where the person who is being confessed to, the doctor in this case, um, has been granted, has been privileged, the position to be able to diagnose, to locate the problems of this, to give it up to the jackals of interpretation and science to that extent. And then number five, the, finally here, number five, through the medicalization of the effects of confession. So this moved from the domain of righteousness and sin, sinfulness, uh, excessor transgression into the domain of the normal and the pathological, where sex was regarded as an unstable pathological field, according to Foucault, a surface of repercussions for other ailments, but also the focus of a specific nosography, that of instincts, tendencies, images, pleasures, and conduct. So what we have then, and if we can think of this in panoptic terms, there's a very good point in um, Discipline and Punish, when Foucault makes clear the, that the panopticon produces homogenous effects of power. Now, in relation to this, that makes a lot of sense, because under the aegis of uh, scientia sexualis, um, sexualis, what we have is that. We have the crystallization, the formation of sex under the paradigm of truth or under the umbrella of truth, which allows a little wiggle room, like, and it's viewed almost always negatively. Whereas the ars erotica, that thing that focuses solely on pleasure, is, is also a very subjective field, but it doesn't give itself over to a state or a scientific apparatus that can then mandate and control that field. It only comes down to the subject where being only focused on pleasures or bodies is only their own. You cannot, uh, well, I guess you could to some extent, dictate what is pleasurable, but in the case of the orgasm, it is a very subjective experience. But Foucault is careful, however, and he makes clear that it should not be noted, or it should be noted, that the ars erotica does not simply disappear. In fact, and he goes on, uh, we must ask ourselves whether, since the 19th century, the scientia, scientia sexualis, under the guise of its decent positivism, has not functioned, at least at a certain extent, as an ars erotica itself. So what we are seeing, essentially, is still this kind of subjectivity, the one previously associated with that subjective phenomenon called pleasure and, and, and the body. Uh, what we see that is a, a subjectivity mandated and controlled by a situation, like a kind of powerful situation, powerful, powerful um, institution, whatever it looks like. So it's almost like the hyper-real example of this subjective field. But the hyper-real, as we might remember from Baudrillard, is a space that can be controlled, that, that can be mandated in the form of like simulation or whatever, where we don't see the proliferation of different, of truly like different uh, beings or bodies or pleasures, but rather the gravitation towards what has been considered the proper way. So we, we open up the domain for all these perversions, 
quote-unquote, to exist, not so that they can be spaces for difference or otherness, but so that everything else can gravitate towards what is considered proper. But proper only considered considered as such by negating what is considered untruthful, unresponsible uh, perversion. So to conclude this uh, section here, I think it includes the section, yeah. Um, he says that what we have to do is define the strategies of power that are imminent, that is inside of uh, this will to knowledge. As far as sexuality is concerned, we shall attempt to constitute the political economy of a will to knowledge, which is what he's going to set out to do. So yeah, that, that'll that close that off there. It's about the first half, right before part four. Get into the rest. I wasn't expecting this to be so... It's just so dense, right? Small books are... Um, they're elusive. They're they're tricky because, the, you know, you think, oh, I'll read this quickly. But if you really want to read it, it's, it takes forever. Uh, so, yeah, so on that note, I hope... I hope you're able to get something out of that. Uh, Foucault's the man. Foucault's a really, really new stuff. But on that note, yeah, for anyone who listened, take care. And if you have any problems with me, you know how to do it. <laughs>